Okay, I am rolling. Are you out there, Ben? I am. Cool. Have you ever read uh, Have you ever read Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance? Yes. You have read it. Yeah, I am. Uh, I'm like deep. I'm like deep into it this week. That's a good I read book. a lot of it's yeah. A, a companion volume after you're finished with that. It's a very short book by uh, I'm trying to remember the author. Uh, he was a Westerner who went to Japan. It's called Zen and the Art of Archery. Very small book. And oh really? It sort of like takes all the same kinds of principles, but it's like all condensed into archery and this Westerner's take on it all. I'm definitely an amateur philosopher. I, I love um, I love all sorts of well, I love and hate all sorts of things pertaining to philosophy. Uh, like I almost uh, it's interesting. I'm addicted to Amazon WhisperSync. Have you heard of this? I've heard of it, WhisperSync. Have you done? Have you been listening to this stuff? You just been. Like, I um I did. What did I do? Oh, I did Josh Waitskin's The Art of Learning uh, a couple weeks ago. Um, and what I do, um, I get up in the morning and I teach at 7:30 every day. Uh, but what I uh, what I do after that is I take um, an hour or so and I go get some exercise of some kind, or at least I try to. And try to do that every day. And I just like um, I love listening to stuff. And uh, I, sometimes I do podcasts. Sometimes I rarely do music anymore, which is weird. I don't know if that's bad for my health. Um, uh, but um, I'm always, no, always sure. listening to stuff. Yeah, and like, and and you can do books on tape, right? You could even get an Audible subscription, you know, which is just a subscription program for all audiobooks. Uh, but what I've been doing now is this Amazon WhisperSync thing, uh, which is, um, which is a book on tape from Audible. <clears throat> it's you know they they partner together, but. It's like a rental kind of thing, isn't it? Like, no, it's not. As far I don't think it is. I think I I think I purchase access to it for as long as I want. But the thing that's awesome is it synchronizes the audiobook to the Kindle book itself. So cool. yeah, so I have an iPad, and sometimes when I'm there's a variety of problems I have with reading. Um, one of the problems is I'm I'm often running around or driving in the car and you know my cars have the bluetooth sync now right yeah, right so sometimes i'm driving in the car and i want to listen to my book obviously you can't be reading and driving at the same time the other problem i have is sometimes uh, my wife wants to watch tv and i want to read but i can't focus when there's sounds going on like yeah. when there's conversations going on and so like this Amazon WhisperSync solves so and and then uh, I guess my final point would be sometimes when it's quiet and there aren't any distractions I just want to read and I don't want to listen to someone I want to actually do the process of reading right So this WhisperSync thing is like connecting all the dots for me because because um, the next time if I opened up my Kindle app right now on this or my iPad it doesn't matter what device right um, it would say, it looks like uh, on another device you've reached this such and such a point in this book. Would you like to go to there now? And you press yes. And then suddenly I could be reading from exactly where I left off with my book on tape. Cool. That's awesome. And then, um, and then I just hop in the car and, and the car senses that the whisper sync is going on. It just starts playing. And anyway, I digress. Uh, how do we get to this point? You were reading Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, I think. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I was. Yeah, so anyway, I, I digress. I highly recommend anyone who's a, a little bit of a technophobe to check out Amazon WhisperSync because it's the coolest thing. That's pretty cool. That's um, been my frustration with listening to books and stuff like that because they don't actually always go to, the, you know, in the past anyway, they go to the place where you left off and then you want to pick up and then you have, and you're fumbling for, you know, minutes trying to figure out where you were and you have to remember where you were and, and that's just dumb. <laughs> yep. You should just like you should just like open the book and be there, you know. So yeah, I'm really. It costs a little bit of money, right? Like you got to buy the ebook, and then the upsell is like, hey, yeah. would you like to connect you this cool? In all ways, all of your holes, all of your face holes will get the information it needs. <laughs> That's right. Would you like to connect the audiobook to your Kindle experience? And um, and I I downloaded the first one was the art of learning, 
by Josh Waitzkin, which is amazing. And everyone that's serious about creating music uh, and certainly um, competing, right? Uh, any sort of competitive form, you have to read that book. It's incredible. Josh Waitzkin is like, he's arguably one of the greatest learners of all time, right? Like he's, um, uh, for those who don't know who he is, he's, he was the subject of the book Searching for Bobby Fischer. Searching for, okay, I did read part of that. Now I'm thinking about it. It's in my Kindle. It's in my Kindle. I started reading it and then I got, how he talks about his chess career as a kid and how he's like, how he learned, yeah. you know, how, to, how he was like, you know, just the pressures and all that stuff about. But the crazy thing, the crazy thing about Josh Waitzkin is um, he becomes, you know, many time national champion of, um, of chess, right, as a kid, many time national champion. But then at, at some point in his life, he ends up in this dojo where they're doing like Tai Chi Chuan or something. Uh, and, and he learns Tai Chi and uh, becomes uh, using the art of learning that he like sort of lived and breathed with chess and falling in love with the idea of learning, um, he uh, becomes a world champion in Tai Chi. Like not just in, in chess, right? Like that's his big thing. He was national champion. Uh, and then in Tai Chi, he was world champion. And um, it's very, very cool. Very interesting. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't know how far I got. I think I got as far as when he started his Tai Chi learning. He was he was learning like the combative tai chi. He wasn't learning like the sort of old folk tai chi, which is like everybody just like moving in the park. You know, it's like he was learning the combat form. I think right, and he was just getting his like his butt handed to him repeatedly and just kept coming back until he figured it all out. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's all very interesting. Okay, let's get down to <laughs> some of the actual uh, topic and content uh, that we agreed to discuss for today. So. We're going up to the top. My first question that I see is Tom is going to be attending the Balmoral School. Um, it's his first time attending a piping school. Do we have any advice? Um, well, let's start by saying this. What's that? Go ahead, Dan. Uh, bring a recorder. That would be my first bit of advice, just to you know, sort of pop it on, just take in. Like, it's particularly good if you're going to be learning tunes and stuff like that, just to get the... Uh, because sort of, you know, it's hard to remember that stuff. You know, you go in to sit there, especially when it's like the third workshop of the day, you know, bleary-eyed. And, you know, you don't always remember what was said. So it's a good, good record. That would be one piece of advice. Yeah. Um, here's my advice with piping schools. And Belmora School is a very famous uh, piping school. You also have schools like the Invermark School. You have slightly different models like Piping Hot Summer Drummer. Um, you have the brief models like Delco Workshop, Winter Storm. Um, for me, uh, for me, as uh, you know, I'm I'm always coming from the current angle, and um, and I know you guys are involved in Dojo U, um, and even in private lessons, right? So here's here's my here's what I would encourage you to think about. Piping schools offer one specific thing that private lessons, um, online lessons, music books, tutors. Piping schools offer one thing that none of these other mediums can offer, uh, with the possible exception of Dojo U, depending on how you apply yourself. Uh, but um, the one thing that these places can offer that nothing else can offer is immersion in bagpipe culture and bagpipe living. Um, like you can, you can truly immerse yourself and you can hang out and spend time with other people uh, that like to play bagpipe music with gurus like like truly um, high-end masters of the instrument and you need to do whatever you can do to maximize that particular aspect of things so don't get too you know the, you know don't get too caught up in exactly what your goals are for the week like I, I'm going to piping school and by the end of this week I want to be able to win a 2-4 March competition in grade 4 don't be, don't be that guy. That would be my advice. Don't be that guy. Instead, it's I'm here with masters. I'm truly soaking everything in, right? I have two or three or four or five dedicated hours of privacy where I can just play bagpipes with no other distractions, mm -hmm. right? Um, you know, I can, I can truly immerse myself in bagpipes for this particular week. 
And you have to try to maximize that element because that's the thing that you're not going to get hardly at all for the rest of the year. Right? So that's my advice. Um, take your cell phone uh, and lock it away. Lock it away in a place and like actually use a lock. Like make it so it's a pain in the butt um, to get at your computer or your cell phone or any of these other pointless distractions because, you know, um, when you have the opportunity to immerse yourself in bagpipes, you've got to take it. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that you, it's, it's good to keep in mind, too, is like in the past when, you know, these models have been around for a long time and, you know, one of the, the big, you know, things that happened in the Ontario scene with, you know, the likes of Bill Livingston and all of these guys, you know, is that they got this kind of immersion and they literally learn tunes in like days, like a couple of days. Like they learn, get the tune, John Wilson, and then they play it. You know, and then by the end of the, by the end of their sessions, they had like you know half a dozen bebops that they would come away with, you know, polished and 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 you know taught, you know, with with uh, at least something they could actually work on further and compete with, you know. And that's the kind of thing that gets lost in is like if you go in with that attitude, like I can go in and I can come out of here taking everything that's there, you should be able to leave with that kind of learning, you know, that kind of expansion of your repertoire and things like that. So go in with like a, an open, as open a mind as possible and really sort of make that sort of a personal goal. Like you're going to take whatever it is that they give you and leave with it, you know, complete in its, you know, its entirety, you know, don't go like do piecemeal. So people have a tendency to go to these workshops and sort of take piecemeal, whatever it is that they kind of understand and it's true. decide what they don't understand. And, you know, they don't actually get the full range of, uh, of that's a learning. Happening. Yeah. That's a learning disability, right? The ultimate learning disability is um, learning to confirm what you already know, right? Mm -hmm. entering, entering into the learning situation to confirm things that you already know. Like, if my read's too hard, I just have to pinch that thing. Yeah, because that, <laughs> that's what I know. Um, and and the piping schools are especially great that way. It's similar to the university. I struggled in university with this, right? I had things that I knew and I was going in there with the attitude that if people were teaching things that didn't jive with what I thought I knew, I, I, you know, I tried to reject it. And ultimately, usually through brute force in the form of a bad grade or two or three, um, you know, they start to beat that stu stupidity out of you. But yeah, there's definitely, then there's always a few, there's always a handful of people at any piping school that uh, think they know everything. And by the way, these people are not just old people. Young people do this too. Young people who, uh, you know, who haven't learned in a good environment do the same thing. Yeah, and it's, it's yeah. a good way to push your own boundaries that way too. You know, it's an opportunity to see where your you know, where your limits are and where you can actually move beyond them. You know, if you're throwing a P Rock or March two four March or a whole MSR in front of you, you know, make that your goal. Like you're going to leave with it, you know, and be able to play it, you know. One of those things, and and being at you know at a full immersion kind of experience like that, you have the opportunity to do whatever work you need to do to get that done. Um, so it's it's a rare opportunity that way. Absolutely. So moving on, next question. Thank you, Tom. That was a great icebreaker. <coughs> um, let's see. Sam says, why does listening to the tutor files outside of practice help me? So I actually know Sam uh, submitted a ticket. Sam is like one of the great product testers for the new tutor, but some of the files were missing from one of the zip files, so we fixed that. Um, but yeah, why does listening to the tutor files outside of practice help you? We can sort of, we can let the folks out there, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Does listening to bagpipe music outside of actually playing or attempting to play bagpipe music, does that help you? And if so, why do you suppose that's the case? Well, you guys are typing, and I can show you. It's uh, ice is starting to melt off the Hudson River. Excellent. <laughs> Finally. Pretty cool. That's what I'm looking at. It's a pretty sweet view you got there. 
Yeah, man. It's the 14th floor. <laughs> Famous Gordon Duncan tune. Eric says, okay, listening keeps your mind on the music, and music is repetition. So in a way, you are mentally practicing, I think, question mark. Yeah. Uh, that's interesting. Ashby's talking about something else. He's still talking about piping schools. That's fine. Sam says it helps him ingrain the correct method. Uh, is definitely probably true. True. Roger says it gets it into your mind, and each time you may pick up something different. Oh, sir. <laughs> Tom is talking about iPhones. Okay. <laughs> we'll get back to that, Tom. Uh, good piping music helps to develop your ear. Yeah, I don't know if it helps develop your ear. I don't think listening, other than damaging your um, eardrums, I don't think listening to piping actually develops your ear in any way. Uh, but I will agree in what you actually mean, I think, which is it develops your musical intuition, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. yeah. I, think, I think the answer is really kind of, it is sort of overthinking it a little bit. Is I, I think when you're listening to piping or when you listen to teaching files or whatever it is that you're, you're doing, outside of the context of trying to learn, quote, learn the stuff, um, you, you tend to engage different mental processes, right? And you're, you're just sort of taking it from a different perspective, a different angle. And it's really as simple as that. I mean, it's, um, you know, if I told you excellent sound on a full, you know, with, with full pressure all the time, what's the question? Was the, you know what I mean? That's that's the answer. But what's the question? So now you have to start thinking about it in a di completely different way than sort of starting at some sort of beginning, you know, sort of imagined beginning and moving sequentially toward uh, a conclusion of some kind where you would have learning happening. Um, really, what you're doing is sort of de you know pulling that apart and using all faculties essentially in different ways for the same problem or the same issue. Um, and that tends to um, it tends to ingrain learning a little bit more solidly, I think. Um, that's, that's, at least that's the idea. Yes, I agree with that. If you're listening while reading the music, you will almost geometrically, you'll be almost geometrically increasing your learning. See, that's another reason I love Amazon WhisperSync is on the occasions where I can listen and read the book, and by the way, the program obviously flips the pages for you, so I just have to hold it, and then I listen, and then, anyway, I digress. But if you're listening while reading the music, it helps you learn, absolutely. And Ken, yeah. Ken sort of touches on it, is that you're internalizing a lot of the things that you've been told, right? You're sort of, you're, in, you're integrating a lot of the ideas, but not using just one sort of cognitive pathway. You're using different ones, especially when, so you're sort of casually listening, you're in a different mental state, and you're using different faculties that would not normally come into play maybe if you were sort of in a classroom environment or sitting learning, you know, with the tutor. Um, I mean, Sam, Sam, you're in the perfect position right now, right? So you're learning how to play and you've got this audio stimulus that you can listen to in your ear as you're learning how to play. Uh, now, how successful would you be, right? Like you have a certain degree of successfulness right this second. Which, you know, you're probably not a master yet. Maybe you are, but you're probably not. Uh, but you're learning stuff, right? But then how would that process be hindered by not being able to hear that or not having examples to follow? Right? Obvious, like it's, it's a no-brainer. We know we're better off exactly. with examples to follow. Another thing... Reinforcement that happens that is it's just, it, and it's good, and as it's being reinforced with you in different sort of perspectives, it just sort of has its way of, sort of coalescing at some point. Yeah. Um, here's, here's a great example. Here's a great American example, which is if you had never seen a baseball game, uh, what, what's your likelihood of, you know, being able to just sort of like read the directions about how to play baseball and then play a good baseball game? What's the likelihood of that happening? A huge part of baseball is watching the game, being excited by the game, understanding some of the strategy of the game. Usually you don't understand all of it by the time you start to play baseball. Um, but yeah, you see some of the strategy, you know, you're, you're intrigued, you love a good home run or when someone steals a base. 
And then suddenly, from there, uh, playing baseball becomes a lot easier. And, uh, and then the other question is, do you think Derek Jeter was just a magical baseball player, or did he watch and, have, and immerse himself in baseball um, you know, to the point where you know, he just sort of naturally became a true uh, master of the game? Absolutely. Yep. Okay. Same with yeah. P. Brock's another great example. Yeah. Well, that's a, a really good example because it's like you know that it has a history from its beginnings of being in sort of a, a listening kind of transmission. You know, um, you would never be because it wasn't put on staff until <laughs> just a couple hundred years ago. Even. Not even. So. All right. Joy, Ben, you can take this one. Because I know you're inspired by this question. <laughs> so you find it here, make you get it right here. I'll read it to you. I've been working to improve my tone. Any suggestions? Question mark. Do you ever see differences in style, stance, or whatever needed between male and female pipers? Yes, is the answer, short answer. Um, it's not so much difference between male and female pipers, but pipers in general, right? Everybody has their own physical need <laughs> for comfort when they're standing and playing to get the ideal tone production out of their instrument. Um, and that's, it's, it's an adventure trying to find that. You know, we, we were all used to seeing, you know, the pipers standing proud and like, you know, hands at a certain level and, you know, and everything else. And, um, you know, it doesn't have to be you. <laughs> that doesn't have to be. And if you look at all the top pipers, solo pipers, everybody's got their own sort of uh, way of holding the instrument and way of going about sort of moving around. Um, you know, two, two examples that come to mind are uh, like the difference between like Willie McCallum and Bruce Gandy, say. Bruce has got a definite sort of, he leans in, he's got a, you know, he sort of holds his hands fairly low. Um, and then Willie's, yeah, is opposite, right? He's like back, his head's thrown back and he's just sort of like, you know, throwing everything up in the air. Um, the, but that's what you have to find. You have to find what um, allows you the greatest amount of flexibility and the greatest comfort in terms of just blowing and squeezing, you know. Um, don't be don't be locked into any kind of model. I mean, you have to be, there's certain rules, right? You have to be standing up and your shoulders should be square and um, definitely ergonomics, standard ergonomics comes into play, right? You shouldn't, your shoulders shouldn't be bunched up. Um, should be, you should be relaxed. Your shoulders should be down and your back should be straight, you know, but the, and then once you start there, everything else should sort of fall into place naturally, I think. Um, and that's going to be different for everybody. It's not just a matter of male and female. It's size, how tall you are, how heavy you are, all that kind of stuff comes into play. So everybody's got different body shapes too, you know. And there you go. Um, I don't know, does that make sense, Joy? No, that's good. Yeah. Mirrors help. With that too, you don't want to you don't do, be doing anything weird. Sometimes I, I you know, sometimes I, I'll get into physical positions that I catch myself doing. If I, if I sort of glance in the mirror, I'll realize I'm like sort of crooking my shoulder or something like that, or bending my head in a way that, you know, oh yeah, that's why my head hurts, my neck hurts. <laughs> like, you know, I've been doing this, you know. So uh, sometimes it's good to sort of check that stuff. It's definitely true. I mean. Um I, I think bagpipe blowing or bagpipe breathing, right? It's the same as regular breathing. Um, tell me, and, and you guys can disagree if you want, but I don't think you're going to, which is, do you ever get in a situation where suddenly you think about your breathing and you realize, for whatever reason, I'm breathing extremely shallowly right now um, in like these weird little short breaths that obviously are not using the full potential of one's lungs, um, that happens. It happens all the time. It's probably happening to me right now, although maybe not because I'm pretty relaxed, right? Uh, bagpiping is the same way. We play ourselves into shortness of breath um, by not uh, by not allowing ourselves um, good posture. We have preconceived notions about how our body should be held, right? This is the classic one. Uh, the classic one is uh, bagpipe on the shoulder, and your and your left shoulder is like this as you're playing. Right? How are you supposed to breathe? Like, go ahead. Put your left shoulder like way up there, like you're trying to hold up a bass drum, and then try to breathe naturally and, and fully inhale and exhale. It's worse. 
<laughs> it's hard, and I mean, you can maybe do it, but how much easier is breathing when you just relax your shoulders? And I'll give you a hint, right? You still have perfectly, uh, per- perfectly parallel collarbones to the ground when you relax your shoulders, right? Um, but how much easier is it to breathe naturally um, when you're in a relaxed state and your posture is good and comfortable and relaxed? Obviously, um, it's so much better. And I coach, I coach some, of our, some of our players on, on that along those lines, which is you should have a long, natural breathing cycle when you're playing uh, to promote a nice, relaxed, uh, open uh, musicianship. Yeah, and, it's, and it's also about, you know, combination of power and also just general oxygenation, right? Like you need, you need your body needs to be oxygenated, your brain needs to be oxygenated, more playing the bagpipes than it would in doing anything else or like any other exercise. Um, you know, you have to be able to take in oxygen and, you know, you, you'll, you'll play better and you'll have greater power into putting it into the bag. You know, you'll, you're, you're just more inclined to use your diaphragm better that way. So... It's definitely something to keep in mind. All right, next up. Uh, Jim has travel plans via the airlines and wonder what is the best method for packing and checking your pipes. Take out Uh, all the metal sharp bits and put them in your checked luggage. (laughs) That's number one. Yeah, um, generally speaking, if you have a nice set of pipes, you want to try to avoid checking them just because the, 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 big, the baggage compartment is so freezing cold when you're up in the air. Um, like, you know, so your bagpipes could be cracked that way. Plus, there's the general paranoia of the airline mishandling your luggage or what have you. So generally speaking, I try to avoid checking my pipes. Um, I bring them in a carry-on sized container of some kind. I've actually got an L.L. Bean carry-on with some padding and room for my laptop and stuff that I use when I travel. Um, As far as taking the instrument apart or whatever, I don't do any of that. Uh, I just carry my pipes just like I would to any other band practice, really, Um, and uh, because the cabin is pressurized and stuff and and what have you. So, Um, yeah, and then, Jim, you're right. The smaller – so when I fly from Albany to Newark – they make me sky check my bag. And I don't know if that's a pressurized compartment or not. I try not to think about it. Um, Maybe you can check that, you know, little, that little roller bag you have. It's a, that's, they'll make you check that, really? It doesn't fit specs? Well, you should see some of the little planes they fly from Albany to Newark. You, you would understand if you saw, but... but uh, yeah. Um, Sam says, have you ever done the blind... This is a sort of out-of-order question. Have you ever done the blind poly pinko versus wood sound test? Mm. Uh, the answer is no, I've never done the test. Should I? Carl swears you can't tell the difference. <laughs> I think he's full of crap. Yeah. Well, I mean, think about it this way. Would there be a blind test that encompassed sort of makes of a cross maker? So you have... Polly Pipes, David Nail, you know, McCallum, you know, I don't know, whatever, makers out there making two sets a year or whatever. You know, if you put them all together, you're going to, you know, where would the poly fit in that scheme, you know? That's, I think, really a better, better sort of gauge versus poly versus wood. It's going to be poly, well-made poly, you know, on well-machined poly then against, say, I I, I can't even keep track of all the makers of that these days. I should do I should do the test, but I'm not going to. It's very it would be a very difficult experiment to operate. You would have to prove that you'd have to prove that the quality of the piper was the same, and the exact same reeds were used, mm-hmm. um, and the exact same pipe bag would have to be used too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know because I you know there's definitely a difference in sound between pipe bags. So the exact same pipe bag would have to be used. The exact same chanter and reed would have to be used. Right. Um, and then, with, well, there's benchmarks, right? There, what's what's yeah. your benchmark for like lousy sound? You know, like how are you going to determine whether or not something sounds, you know, okay or versus sounds really good or mediocre or really excellent? You know, that's 
that's a hard thing too. You know, there's a wide range of in there, you know, from bad to good. Here's what I know. Here's what I know, which is not necessarily the end all and be all, but I do know I've never heard a truly inspiring bagpipe sound played on polypinko set of pipes. <laughs> now, true. part of the reason part of the reason true. I part of the reason I may not have heard that is because so few of any of the great pipers would ever play a poly set to, to present their finest work, you know, uh, like that would just not, that's, and maybe it's due to pig headed dogma. Uh, I don't know, but I just know that, uh, I have never heard. I'd be curious to know if, if, if any of them have ever done that, like on gigs or maybe parades or some certain sort of situations where they would just grab a bare poly set and play that, you know, and, and what they think of it. That would be an interesting survey. I certainly think for, for a company like McCallum, you know, for a company like McCallum Bagpipes, uh, who can crank out poly sets really quickly and easily, and at way, you know, way cheaper than any of the competition, McCallum should definitely sponsor uh, the top pipers to try to win gold medals with poly pipes. Um, because that would uh, obviously spike sales if you could start to prove. Certain competitions, you know, even maybe some of the lower stakes recitals slash competition type events. That are out there, maybe, where uh, you know you'd be willing to sort of give something a try. I know the Metro yeah. Cup does that. I mean, there's a lot of you know a lot of these guys will come out and do things that they wouldn't normally do. You know? Yeah. Um, so, you know, that would definitely be a good forum for that. You know, even though the stakes are pretty high, it's a good prize purse. But uh, at the same time, you know, these guys can go out and play, you know, reeds or pipes that aren't necessarily their top sort of go-to set or something. Okay. Next, let's move on here. We've got to go back, got to get back in the queue here. Completely random from Eric. I had a discussion with someone about phrasing. For example, in the 2-4 march, almost always the phrasing is in question. Oh, yeah, the phrasing is question, answer, question, answer. Each two measures long. Okay, so far this makes sense to me. Is there a rule, or can phrases also be of unequal length? Athlon Bedalbing Gathering, second part. How's Athlon Bedalbing Gathering go? No, that's not it. And then the second part goes. No, it's the third part. I digress. Aha. Yeah, okay, here's my answer to that question. Oh, this is kind of a cool little website. Got the file, the download, and the... Uh, I got a private message from Eric. I'm not going to share that because that might be their band music. Um, but anyway, I digress. So uh, here's, the here's the drill with that. I've been thinking about this, right? So there are all sorts of fundamental tools we use as musicians to um, create and perform the music, all right? So in general, the call and answer form of a 2-4 march is a rule. It's something that happens very, very consistently across pretty much every single 2-4 march. However, um, however, good composers are gonna always take those rules and bend and stretch them in order to create interesting music. So I think the long phrase in the second part of Athlon Berdalbin Gathering is just an example of a slight deviation from what the listener might expect. And that's what takes something from being, um, you know, marginally, slightly sort of musical into being particularly musical. It's a, it's a change in what, we, um, in what we expect to hear fundamentally. Right? It's the same as like, well, you know, it's the same as dot cuts, right? Fundamentally, we should approach every single dot cut rhythm the same. But artistically, it might be in our interests to vary how we approach these things in order to uh, produce interesting effects. Same with freight, same with like strong week, medium week. We know that's how you should play Strauss Bays, right? But almost every great Strauss Bay player will tell you they don't 
do strong week, medium week, and every single bar and phrase. It's just not, uh, that's not exactly how it works. Strong week, medium week is just the default from which the melody and the player's mood and the degree to which they're experimenting um, could all play factors in, in that sort of expression. Indeed. Good answer. Thank you. Yeah. So, so uh, yeah, phrase structure is is a fundamental. It's a fundamental skill that every composer should have knowledge of, um, and should should probably consider when they're composing. Um, however, purposely deviating from that—that's the fun stuff. That's that's the whole point of composing. Mm -hmm. um, so that's that's my answer to that question. Mike says, does anyone play until drones and chanterides are ideal moisture, then open the bag and put in a moisture control system? Okay. I see what you're saying here. Uh, I do see what you're saying. And here's one thing I know for sure is every, every awesome player that loves the sound of sheepskin has definitely thought about this. But here's the reality. The reality of the situation is moisture control is not, um, it's not like, uh, it's not like the moist air is happy and then it goes through the rocks and comes out dry. That's not really how it works. The real, the, what's really going on with a moisture control system, obviously it's filtering moist air, but it also has that implicit effect where anything dry inside of a moist environment is going to extract moisture out of it in order to achieve an equilibrium. So if you have the perfect level of moisture in your bagpipes and you put in anything that is dry relative to that environment, uh, th that will extract moisture out of the system. And so you'll destabilize your instrument by doing that. Um, and that is, that is the very sad reality of the moisture control system, which is um, you can have completely dry and you can have no moisture control at all, but to try to decide somewhere in between the ideal, you know, nature in between to try to reach that sort of equilibrium is very, very difficult, if not impossible. I guess the, uh, the solution then would be to actually put in a moisture control system that is already charged to an ideal level. So it can, can, it can maintain it, I guess, for a little while anyway. But then you're getting into the idea of like, well, it would just be maintained anyway without it. Because it's equal, you're at, if you're at equilibrium, you're going to be at equilibrium until something changes. You know, there's either too much moisture now uh, going in or, um, you know, I don't know. There might be an ideal point in which, you know, if it will extract just enough to keep everything, you know, at a stable, stable point for a while. But I don't know. Mike, thanks. I am I'm honored to be called the Bill Belichick of piping. With that said, I have not yet cut off the sleeves of my hoodie. Um, maybe I'll do that for Halloween this year. Uh, but yeah, uh, let's see. So John says we have an issue in Colorado where we may need to use the Ross cancer system to add moisture to the chanter only to keep the reed a bit moist. Um, yeah, I think the ideal situation for high altitudes, I actually have a lot of experience playing at high altitudes because um, we used to hang out at Piping Hot Summer Drummer for two weeks every summer. So, um, you know, and that's pretty, I don't know if it's as high or higher than where you might be in Colorado, uh, but that's not so much the point as it is to say, you know, the sheepskin bag or, or a nice hide bag is the optimal setup for high altitudes because, um, what you lack in air density, right? So the, the less air density, the fewer molecules there are in the air, the more difficult it is to get a harmonic sound to come out of the reed. Uh, and so a nice moist setup is the ideal for getting a good tone at altitude. Yeah. And then no moisture in the air and the reeds dry out. That's just, it's just a challenge. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's you're talking about extremes too, right? Like you might as well be. It's like playing in New Mexico or Arizona as well, right? Where it's just, you know, there's like zero humidity and <laughs> just heat all the time, you know. Um, that's you know, nature. Just, yeah. Nature always wins. <laughs> it's true. 
<laughs> That's my, uh, that is my philosophy on uh, stuff inside of the bagpipe. Is nature always wins. You could put, you could put three Ross canister systems in there. And guess what? Eventually, your drone reeds are going to get wet. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yeah. You could put, and then if you're in a dry climate, you could put 14 soaking wet sponges inside of your bag. But guess what? Eventually, those sponges are going to dry out. Start and cleaning. then your pipes are going to get dry. Yeah. This, this dovetails yeah. nicely with uh, Eric's uh, question, how much season should one put in a hide bag? You're talking about two natural sort of components. You have skin and some sort of like naturally derived uh, goop <laughs> that goes in there. And the answer is like there's no way to know because nature, like you said, nature when Nature has its own rules. Yeah. You've got that skin bag under your arm. It's going to decide how much seasoning it needs, really. Um, you know, that the truth the about seasoning, yeah. yeah, like like for me, first of all, the bag needs to be fully lubricated, for lack of a better word, right? There's got to be seasoning on all of the surfaces inside the bag, and then um, and then you would drain it out, right? But then the more there's a more important part of this, which is to play the seasoning into the bag, okay? Which is to say. Right, every bag is going to have points where air is very gradually leaking out. Uh, probably, uh, almost that's got to be the case. There's always air leaking out somewhere, but the seasoning, this goopy seasoning, is actually going to make its way towards those spots and fill those spots in, and, and they're very, very subtle spots. And that's the true question of seasoning, right? Your bag needs seasoning to the point at which you can fully seal that bag and no air can possibly escape. Yep. And that's that's just gonna be a gauge you're just gonna have to like I I tied on what did I tie on my, my bag? The twelfth of March, I think. And it's still taking seasoning, you know. And I'm playing it pretty regularly and it's still like needs more, a little bit more um, you know, I'm trying careful not to overdo it, you know, and I don't want to overdo it because I've done that in the past. And uh you know, but little by little, you just, it's it's just it's going to take it as long as it takes until it stays airtight for more than you know an hour. You know, so it's, it's just a it's just a feel thing. You're going to have to gauge it and watch it, and you know, and just you know, you'll know when it's finished. <laughs> I think. Eric says, "Is the pur purpose of seasoning not also to absorb water?" Uh, I don't know. I, I to this day, I still don't really know. There's no real evidence that seasoning absorbs more or less water to me. I think all it does is it holds, like it will hold, like it, just by its very nature and its composition, it will hold moisture. Like it, it, that's its job. Its job is to take the moisture and hold it, um, but it's only going to hold it so much, you know, right? It can't, it can't hold it any more than it's able to, just in terms of that equalized sort of environment, which is why, you know, it, you know your, your sort of sheepskin bag, if it's well-maintained and well-seasoned, will be stable for a length of time, right? Because that it, once it reaches that stability point, its equilibrium is, you know, it's mean, it's held in other words until you know things change. Like you have more moisture, keep going in or whatever, and you overplay, and then things just get become a mess. But yeah, if anything, the effect is very very small. This is just my take on things. I think one of the reasons seasoning seems to help with moisture so much is that seasoning helps with overall bagpipe efficiency so much. So. When your bagpipe is inefficient and leaking air, you're working harder and contributing a lot more, um, you know, uh, a lot more moisture to the bag just because you're working that much harder um, and just in general um, less efficient. Um, and so, uh, and you could also look at it from, yeah. Most of airtight is, uh, is composed of lanolin, you know, so, and that stuff by its very nature is, is it, it holds on to moisture. It's like, I forget the word for it. There's a word for it. Um, but it, like, it will actually, you know, the water molecules will adhere, you know, it'll grab onto them. It'll fill the spaces in between the chains and stay there, you know, and that's, and that's, it's, that's why it's in all kinds of skincare products and all this other stuff because it holds on to the moisture. And so it's, it'll stay on, like, you know, when you've got skin cream, you're throwing it on your skin. It's literally just holding on to surface moisture. So it keeps it on your skin. That's all it's doing. It's not like, making your skin more moisturized. It's just keeping a moisturized layer on your skin, 
which is what it's doing in the bag as well, I think, you know, which is why it keeps some sort of stability. Agreed. Kevin says, describe the difference between reels and hornpipes from uh, the perspective of what the audience is actually hearing. Visual inspection of the tunes. If you inspect them visually, you see there is a difference, right? Hornpipes are in 2-4, reels are in cut time, hornpipes use 16th notes, and reels use 8th notes. But once the tempo is considered, the reels' 8th notes equal the hornpipe's 16th notes in terms of notes per second. So, um, you know, basically, it's, it would seem that the audience is hearing something very similar. And that's absolutely true, Kevin. Reels and hornpipes are extremely similar in feel. Um, I think the biggest difference traditionally between a hornpipe and a reel is the length of phrase. Uh, it's, it's sort of like the length of phrase, um, and or you might also look at it as the length of a part. So typically reels are, uh, you know, HB each part course. is half the length. <laughs> yeah. And then half you have the hornpipe is twice that. So. Yeah. And then, you know, there's also the historical significance of each of those idioms. Uh, they represented different types of dances. And what we call them might be more about what the dance is than how the tune is actually constructed. Uh, but for all intents and purposes, you have a very legitimate question there, which is, what's the freaking difference here? <laughs> what the heck? Uh, and I think that's, I think you are correct. I think originally, you know, the dances, they have a sort of rhythmic component that features in some of those tunes that maybe aren't featured in reels, traditional reels, you know. And, uh, so even though they may be timed the same, they're rhythmically, they're, they're just slightly different there because of the dances that they accompanied. Once they open up, though, and everybody's playing everything around, it doesn't matter. It's all the same, <laughs> basically. Cool. I'm skipping Tom's question because we already did one of his. Uh, we'll come back to it if we have time. Uh, Sarah says, I've recently started recording myself with a Zoom H4, but I'm having difficulty capturing the full depth of both the drones and the chanter. The chanter sounds high-pitched and thin. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to get quality recordings. Any suggestions on where to put the recorder in relation to where I stand while recording? How far away or how high up? Or what type of room is best for recording? I think you could start there. But I think really what you want to do is mess with the settings on the Zoom itself. Um, make sure your, you know, your mic gain is low enough and it's not taking too much. Um, there's also, uh, I think, I have to get my Zoom to look at it. But there's there's an attenuation uh, measure as well. I think you can actually adjust as well and take maybe punch that a little bit lower to get to get a better sort of. I think there might, you know, the Zoom H4 might even have more features where you can actually set it maybe for like an acoustic environment rather than say, you know, uh, a concert hall or, you know, a, a practice room or something. It might be different settings of that nature where you can sort of set that attenuation for the environment that you're in. Uh, so start there, yeah. you know, and microphone, then, then microphone placement is a big issue too, yeah. right? If the microphone is too close to the chanter, um, it, the chanter will overwhelm the sound as opposed to the drones. Uh, a good way of thinking about this is um, what's your favorite room to play your bagpipes in? What's the room you enjoy the most? And that's the room that's best to record in, just sort of as a nice default. So if you like playing in the kitchen, that's where you should record. Uh, but then the next question is, where is the best? And th think of it this, I, I find thinking of it this way helps. Where would be the best place to listen to you playing. And a great way to test this is for you to listen to someone else playing. Where's the best place to sit, right? If you sat uh, two feet away, right underneath the bell of the chanter, two feet away, all you're gonna hear is really loud chanter sound and you're not gonna get a good mixture of the drones. So, you know, I think if I sat five or six feet away, and we're listening pretty much from like, you know, mid-level height, like I'm sitting in a chair. Well, that would be a, a great place to place the microphone in order to get the best uh, quality mic placement you can get. Yeah. So, uh, but then, but what Vin is saying is very important too. If the gain is set too high on the microphone, then the, what comes in is going to be distorted. So you need to make sure um, that that's set properly as well. One of the things I, I discovered too, um, you know, after using it, my Zoom's pretty old now, it's the H2, 
Um, but it's, you know, I was using the front mic, which is a 90, 90 degree uh, angles. And I, and I realized there is, you know, it's, the, the H2 has a four direction mic. So I, the other two directions are wider spread. So I started using that mic, that side of the microphone, and I got a much better result, um, a much deeper sound, um, just because it's grabbing more, more sound, essentially. So I don't know. If, well, it's grabbing more of the room. Yeah. It's I mean, grabbing so more of the indirect. Yeah. So I, I think 120 Rex degrees sound, yeah. versus 90, I think. Is, so you get a more realistic ambient. H4 might be more, have more options that way. You may be able to adjust that even. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, but generally distance helps that a lot too. So the further away you place the microphone from the source, the more of the room sound will be incorporated in the sound. And then the closer you put the mic, um, the less the room will impact the sound. So it all depends what you're going for. If you know, for most of us who are just recording ourselves playing, um, placing the microphone, you know, six to ten feet away is usually a good habit because it gets a nice natural room tone uh, at that distance. Meanwhile, if you're gonna record in the studio and you want a perfectly clean sound, you need to not place the microphone too far away um, in order to minimize the effect of room. Yeah. Uh, and then you can add effects like reverb and stuff like that later. In the corner of my room, you know, it's just sort of sitting up there at maybe tenor drone level. Um, that, it seems to do the trick, you know. If it was placed on the ground, I don't think I'd get the same kind of result, you know, or on a dresser, which is kind of waist high. Um, I think you want to get as high up as you can, just so you can capture more more of the sound, because that's where the sound's going, basically, you know. Yep. Well, I think this is a good point uh, to call it in here for today. There's plenty more great questions, though. Um, should we do this sort of thing more often? Is this better than preconceived topics? Okay, we can definitely dear do that. Dear Dojo. <laughs> dear, jo dear, dear Dojo. Dear Dojo. I'm having trouble with my season bag. <laughs> yeah, cool. Um, you guys got to get, like, the next book that you want to read, got to get the Amazon Whisper Sync. It's going to change your world. Carl has to talk too, but Sam, if Carl's talking and I'm talking, who's who's uh, the captain of the ship? You know, who's going to be like running things? What happens if uh, a fire breaks out? He's there though. He's he's li he, he's listening, sort of like in a sinister fashion. He chimes in, he chimes in usually in some sort of controversial way. <laughs> There he is. Yeah, he's there. All right, guys. Well, there it is. Uh, an, another episode of Dojo Universe in the books. And uh, we will be back next week. Awesome. Awesome. So we'll see everybody later. Have a good day, everyone.